October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 44, The World and Worldliness. Last time, well, we finished up our seven-part series on questions and doctrine. We talked about the Adventist Evangelical Conferences, the publication of QOD, and M.L. Andreasen's protest. And even though we spent seven episodes on this one topic, there's much more that could be said about Barnhouse, Andreasen, and the implications of that whole affair, because, of course, it didn't really end with Andreasen's death. But we're going to have to put a pin in it and move along. Somewhat belatedly, I did want to tell you guys about some of the things that have changed over the past six months. Our bonus episodes, if you've noticed, are gone. They found a new home in a new podcast, The Avenus History Extra. I know some of you were confused on social media when we were talking about some of the new bonus episodes and you couldn't find them in the Avenus History podcast because it's not here. It's there at The Avenus History Extra. Extra is where I will do my side content, interviews, just looks at little bits and pieces that I discover along the way, okay? Sometimes I just find an interesting statement or a curious letter and I want to talk about it, but it makes no sense to do it in one of these episodes, so things fall through the cracks. We can't talk about everything on this podcast. Next month, for instance, I plan to do an Avenus History Extra episode about Operation White Coat, which I guess could be an entire episode here in the main podcast, but I'm going to kick it over to Avenus History Extra and talk about it there. Of course, we also have the blog on AdventistHistoryPodcast.org, where I post about other Avenus History-related things, things that just make more sense to read about than to listen to. I've started a blog series on the life of M.L. Andreasen, more recently, I published a post about C. Mervyn Maxwell and whether or not he thought Seventh-day Baptists were the right way for Adventists to go. Spoiler alert, no, <laughs> he doesn't think that's the right way to go. You can also go listen to Michael Campbell and Greg Howell's podcast, Adventist Pilgrimage. We have an absolutely dynamite episode coming out where Michael, myself, and Kevin Burton went to the Seventh-day Baptist headquarters and interviewed Nick Kirsten, head of their historical collection. I'm not sure what his official title is. It was just so much fun. And you're going to find that one on Adventist Pilgrimage and Adventist History Extra, same episode, just in both places, October 1st of this year, 2022. Now, I, I only want to remind you that there is great Adventist History content going on all the time. And it's only going to get better. Okay? So you have Avenus History Podcast, Avenus Pilgrimage, Avenus History Extra, all three of those podcasts. And you have the blog at adventisthistorypodcast.org. Now, let's get on with today's episode. Because we've had our heads in the sand for the past seven episodes, we need to get up, shake off the sand out of our hair, and just step back. Take a look at the wider Avenus world as the calendar reaches 1960. So get in this hot air balloon with me and let's go around the world in 80 days. 
well, okay, we don't have 80 days to, to record this, but, you know, so to speak. Beginning at the top, the 1950s were good to the General Conference. It was hard to find bad news for America in general during the 1950s. I mean, you had the Korean War and some other things, of course, but, but it, was a, it was otherwise a good economic period to be in America. This was the era of what many countries call their economic miracles following the Second World War. These miracles were often just stiff gusts of economic winds. Few experienced the economic jet stream that Japan and the United States did, however. You may recall that 1922 was the pivot point at which more Adventists lived outside of North America than lived inside of it. It had taken nearly 60 years since the church had been officially formed to reach that point. By the late 1950s, only a quarter of Seventh-day Adventists lived in North America. So why, you might wonder, should America's financial boom during the 1950s help the Adventist church when only a quarter of its members lived in North America? And the answer to that question is because almost 80% of the denomination's funds still came from North America. So they had 25% of the members, but gave 80% of the funds. Now, the result was that in the 10-year period from 1948 to 1957, the church brought in as many tithes and offerings as they had in the preceding 85 years combined. Let me say this in another way. The GC had a statistical secretary, a job whose very existence suggests prosperity. And this secretary reported that the Adventist church had received a billion dollars in all forms of giving from 1863 to 1957, okay, a span of 94 years. They've received a billion dollars in the last 94 years. Half of that billion dollars had been raised in just the most recent 10 years. Does that help a little bit? The 1958 GC session was also surprised to learn that after passing the plate around for a special offering for evangelism, they found over a million dollars in it, which was another financial first in a decade of financial firsts. The same explosive growth was happening with church membership. The church had doubled in size over the past 10 years. Doubled in size, my friends. 46,000 people worked for the Seventh-day Adventist Church around the world. Of those 46,000 employees, only 3,000 were ordained ministers and evangelists. It was estimated that the church would earn its second billion in just 12 more years and double its membership again by 1976. And, in case you were curious, by 1976, membership had more than doubled. Because Adventists tended to interpret all of these great numbers as a sign of God's blessing, it was natural to wonder whether God was blessing the Adventists more than those other Christians. So, the General Conference published a comparison focusing on North America. Adventists were quite obviously far from the largest denomination in North America, that role belonged then, as now, to the Southern Baptists. 
There were nearly 8 million Southern Baptists in North America, but only 300,000 Adventists. Adventists were growing at a rate of about 2.9%, which wasn't extraordinary. It was about the, the same growth rate, more or less, as everybody else. The real focus of this comparison was on giving, because Adventists were apparently giving $212.80 per capita. No other denomination of any size came close. The Southern Baptists gave a miserable $48 per capita, less than a quarter of what the Adventists were giving. Now, I, I do want to add this. It's time to digest a huge grain of salt because giving is an incredibly difficult thing to compare across denominations. Adventists got those numbers from the National Council of Churches, but did they really measure everything that the Southern Baptists gave? Who knows? But Adventists were generous givers, and it wouldn't surprise me if they really did outgive every other sizable Christian group per capita. Adventists were generous, yes, and Adventists had innumerable opportunities to ask for money. Not just tithes, but offerings. Offerings for in-gathering, for Sabbath school missions, for schools, for evangelism, for building projects, and many, many other things. Now, you might be thinking that it's a bit gaudy to be bragging about how much money you give versus other people. It smacks of that small dog syndrome, right? You're, you're, you're beating us in every meaningful metric. You have more people. You have more money. You're more well-known in America, da-da-da-da-da-da. So let's find that one thing that we're winning at so we can say we're the best. Now, certainly this is an important concern in an internet age where Christians are packed so closely together and are always noticing what each other is doing and saying. And while the GC bulletins were available to anyone who wanted them, it wasn't something most Christians were going to notice. Obviously, this wasn't a boast to the Christian world. It was aimed at boosting Adventist morale. And while there might be a little of that small dog syndrome at work here, I think what these Adventists were getting at was not really about money. It was about sacrifice. It wasn't about the money. It's about what the money signifies. That is, again, a culture of sacrifice. Everyone was expected to sacrifice. So I don't think this is pride in how much money Adventists were giving. Like, look at us, we're so rich. I think this was pride, if pride is the right word, in the fact that Adventists had this superior culture of sacrifice. This was still the time when Adventist doctors and pastors and teachers were all on the same pay scale. To be an Adventist employee was to sacrifice. You were expected to donate towards the cause, donate your time, donate your talents, donate your treasure to the cause. The 1958 General Conference session, before we leave it behind, also featured other highlights, and the one that I want to highlight is a new screen that hung above the stage and featured announcements like, Hey, buddy, your car is being towed. Well, on one occasion, an announcement read, Doctor needed at Loma Linda Snack Bar. Hey, I'm not a doctor, but I'm going to respond to that page. You know what I mean? Swimming west to the Pacific. I guess we've left our hot air balloon. <laughs> We're swimming now? Okay. Australian church leaders were set to cut the ribbon on the new Warunga Church building. 
which would be the largest Adventist church in Australia. It would be able to seat a thousand people and feature what the Sydney Morning Herald called a large crying room for mothers. Is that really what you guys call it over there? Crying room? And it's really for mothers or is it for their kids? <laughs> Depends who's preaching. Anyways, a unique feature of the building was the addition of concrete ramps so that patients from the nearby sanitarium, which is now Sydney Adventist Hospital, could be rolled into the church in wheelchairs. Pretty cool. The other sanitariums in Sydney and Warburton were doing well. Anyone who grew up in the Kellogg years might be surprised to hear that both sanitariums were operating without any subsidy from the church. The sanitarium health food company was doing great with 1,000 employees, 11 factories, and 28 stores. Part of the sanitarium health profits went back to the church, and those profits were large enough, get this, large enough that they comprised 21% of the budget of the entire division. Whew. The company even sponsored the 1956 Summer Olympic Games in Melbourne and had their products served in the Olympic Village. Edward Heppenstall also went down to Avondale to clean up the squabble raised by the North New Zealand Conference President Robert Grieve. Grieve had been fired for his teaching on justification, the sanctuary, the nature of Christ, and Ellen White. And it was a shock because it's not every day that a conference president goes down. Grieve, of course, knew exactly how to get back. He wrote to Donald Gray Barnhouse to insist that the Adventist church wasn't orthodox. He had been fired for teaching basic Christian orthodoxy, you know, that kind of stuff. And this led Figure to gripe, quote, I'm afraid there must be something the matter with the man mentally, end quote. Not, not, not charitable, but certainly you could understand Figure. It's like, why does every Adventist who's upset with us have to go to Barnhouse to complain and try to undermine everything we've done, right? It's like, we, all, we know that Barnhouse is wound a little bit tight and... and Let's stop trying to disturb the man. Greaves' ally, Herbert Whitford, wrote a letter which was published in The King's Business. You'll remember that The King's Business was edited by Lewis Talbot, the inveterate foe of the Adventist Evangelical Conferences, the inveterate foe of Walter Martin, and, and Barnhouse. Oh, man, he just refused to believe that Adventists had changed. So when Herbert Whitford wrote this letter to him, oh, he was, must have been so happy to publish it. This is what the letter said, quote, The Seventh-day Adventist churches down here are rocked over what has already happened, and some more of your literature would help to rock some more. You see, we were so blinded that we could not imagine Sunday keepers having any truth. Now our eyes are opened, and we want to help the many honest-hearted Seventh-day Adventists out of bondage too, end quote. As you can tell, Edward Heppenstall had his hands full when he arrived in Australia. Ebenstall undoubtedly did his best to ensure that the believers there assembled at Avondale were on the side of the angels, but one young man in particular kept peppering Heppenstall with insightful questions. And that young man was named Desmond Ford. This was the beginning of a long friendship between Heppenstall and Ford, and it began in the strangest way. I mean, consider the chain of events here. The Adventist Evangelical Conferences happened, Roy Allen Anderson writes to Grieve, informing him that he, Froome, and W.E. Reed are all studying the nature of Christ issue as they were writing Questions on Doctrine. Grieve interprets this letter 
to mean that the church is changing its theology on the nature of Christ, and that feeds his protest because he thinks those men at the General Conference are about to change the church's position, and they're going to be on my side, so I might as well start saying what I want to say, critiquing the church's current position, you know, Andreasen's position, on the nature of Christ, because these guys are going to go back me up. So Grieve will go around saying, hey, Anderson's on my side, Anderson's on my side, Froome's on my side, you know, all of that. Well, that protest brings Heppenstall over from America, where he meets and befriends Desmond Ford. So in a complicated, weird way, it's because of the Avenus Evangelical Conferences that Desmond Ford and Edward Heppenstall became friends. Yeah. I think the moral of the story is that every problem in the world can ultimately be traced back to questions on doctrine. That's, that's my working theory. In any case, Desmond Ford wasn't the only one influenced by Heppenstall this summer. Robert Brinsmead, a deeply conservative farm boy, some have called him, was enamored with Heppenstall's idea that there was only one covenant in the Bible. This, you may recall, was something Heppenstall presented at the 1952 Bible Conference in which church leaders subsequently made him carefully edit before they were willing to print his presentation. The Australasian Division President, F.G. Clifford, boasted of, quote, a notable victory for the cause of temperance, end quote, in Victoria when voters rejected a proposal to extend licensed liquor selling hours. Church temperance leaders brought William Scharfenberg, the temperance secretary at the General Conference, to address a big rally. Scharfenberg was a missionary to China with a very colorful life, the highlights apparently including a personal friendship with the president of India, King Saud of Saudi Arabia, and the distinct pleasure of being an American sitting in a Kremlin office when the Soviet Union shot down Gary Powers' U-2 plane. Talk about awkward. Scharfenberg faced another kind of awkward in Australia, where the Sydney Morning Herald headlined one of his talks, quote, a temperance man among lions. Yeah, it was a beautiful double entendre, because the Lions International Group was having lunch right next to Scharfenberg, and they kept drinking and singing while Scharfenberg warned about the evils of alcohol. Later, Scharfenberg polled a couple of thousands of Aussies about their drinking and concluded that 73% of men and 41% of women drank. And he recommended that Australians drink milk instead of beer and create pineapple gardens, not beer gardens. Hey, Scharf, I am all up for a pineapple garden, my friend. One writer approved of Scharfenberg's crusade against teenage drinkers, arguing that churches had a duty to open juice bars and give teens a better alternative to alcohol. Juice bars for everybody! Woo! Anyways, let's sail north to the Far East Division, which basically encompasses Asia outside of the South Pacific, and we will find one of the few divisions outside of North America with over 100,000 members. The Far East was really coming to stand on its own feet in these days. It had been over 70 years since Abram LaRue had carried Seventh-day Adventist Christianity to Hong Kong, and now there were 30 sanitariums, or clinics, among the 21 nations in this division. 
buildings were added to the Tokyo Sanitarium to enlarge it. Same thing with the Bangkok Sanitarium. Same thing with the Penang Sanitarium and the Manila Sanitarium. New hospitals were to be added in Vietnam, Indonesia, and on Okinawa. Everywhere you looked, there were new schools, new churches, new medical centers, new publishing houses. There was a renewed emphasis on training native Adventists to take over administrative responsibilities. One had already become a union president. Two became college presidents. Four became hospital business managers. These days, still wincing from accusations of imperialism, we are generally pretty happy to hear that authority is being taken from, typically, white Western males and being handed to Native Africans or Asians or whatever. And I, too, think it's a good thing when a people can run their own affairs. But I think we should also appreciate how some of these Western missionaries really came to love their life overseas, working on behalf of one people or another. Let me just give you one reasonably quick story. In 1960, the General Conference Committee voted to recall Merritt C. Warren from Taiwan after he had served in the region for almost 48 years. Warren's missionary career began in 1913 when he had arrived in Shanghai with his wife. They spent six months learning the language before heading deep into China where there were no Adventists. They took a steamship the first thousand miles, and the last 400 miles were taken in a small boat through the rapids. The captain told Warren that one in 20 boats who attempted this journey over these 400 miles are lost, which worked out to about a 1,000 people dead every year. In some ways, the adventure was only just beginning because one family of missionaries returned home due to illness. Another couple was sent only for the wife to die of pneumonia when they got there. Four families were then sent to replace them. One man was shot by bandits. Two wives were killed in their beds while their husbands were away visiting or preaching or something. Yet still, the Warrens pressed on through the Japanese invasion, through the Second World War, and through the Chinese Revolution. Did a lot of these missionaries basically Americanize as they went? Yes. Did they all take the time to understand and integrate local traditions and nuances? No. But the story isn't that simple. You just can't stop there because people like Merritt Warren, his wife Wilma, and their family devoted their lives to the Chinese and the Filipinos where he spent a few years towards the end. I mean, they risked everything. Thousands of people risked everything to go be among these people. It's not as simple as just condemning all Western missionaries as colonizers. There were there was some, some cross-cultural knowledge being shared here. Missionaries generally learned to love a people who didn't look or sound like them. They spent their lives, they could have been, uh, if they were medical missionaries, they could have been spending it in a hospital earning some better money. But instead, they would travel to these remote parts, risk life and limb, their children, their, their spouse, in order to build up a clinic or start a school or plant a church. They immersed themselves in the world of the people they went to serve. And this was really the beginning of a golden age of Adventist mission. We had one at the beginning of the century. It really becomes redoubled after the Second World War, which kind of interrupted things. You know, a lot of missionaries were recalled home. And now they're coming back in full force. And it was a very fruitful period in Adventism. A lot of folks 
either were missionaries, had family members who were missionaries, or who knew missionaries in their church. And those mission stories were some of the most powerful, impactful things that came out of this. They, they, those stories traveled around the world and inspired people and blessed people. And, you know, we have to balance all of these things, right, when we're talking about the legacy of what these missionaries accomplished. Now, let's take the train to Africa, where we will find the crown jewel of the church's exceptional growth in this period, because it was in the Southern African division that the church added over, drumroll please, what, we don't have that technology? Ah, okay, well, anyways, they added over 70,000 new members in the past four years, doubling the size of the church there. Not Not in the past 10 years, they doubled it in the past four years. And in the next four years, my friends, they would add another 70,000. By the end of the 1950s, Southern Africa was the biggest center of Adventism outside of North America. The only downside was that they seemed to be retaining something like, I don't know, slightly more than half of those that they baptized. But in other news, Salusi Training School in Zimbabwe, the first Adventist mission in Africa, began offering four-year degrees in 1958 when it became known as Salusi College. So kudos to Salusi. Now they're Salusi University, so they're beyond even that. The membership was growing so rapidly in Africa that the church couldn't keep up with their institution building. As a result, many nurses had to be trained at non-Avenous hospitals. In some cases, members paid tithe in food, which I think is something that Avenous should consider again, because I would like to see an offering plate full of donuts. Oh, and a new president was elected for the Southern Africa Division in 1958, a man named Robert Pearson. And we will have loads to say about him later on. In Ghana, the government ended up paying for the entire cost of construction for the Kwahu Hospital. Avenists were also able to return to Desi in Ethiopia after conflict forced them out 30 years before. Africa was alive with change at the middle of the 20th century. Colonial rule was breaking. The British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan visited South Africa in 1960 and famously confessed, quote, The wind of change is blowing throughout this continent, and whether we like it or not, this growth of national consciousness is a political fact. We must all accept it as a fact, and our national policies must take account of it, end quote. Sudan, Morocco, and Tunisia broke free from European powers in 1956, Ghana declared independence in 1957, and 17 more nations declared independence in 1960. The president of the West Africa Union saw opportunity. Quote, These lands are stirring with new life. New nations are being born. Great industries, including shipping and airlines, are appearing almost overnight. Schools and colleges are being built everywhere, a few years ago, only a few students had completed secondary school, and the professional ranks of ministers and teachers were largely filled by men with primary and elementary educations, plus perhaps a short period of professional training. Suddenly that day has passed. Shall we look forward to a church led by half-trained, poorly informed men, ill at ease in the presence of their better-educated brothers of other denominations? Does the proclamation of this great Advent message deserve men trained to meet the times in which we live? 
The answer is obvious. We must do something and do it quickly. Our Avenus youth cry in no weak voice for training in keeping with the times in which we live. They want Christian education, distinctly Seventh-day Adventist education, that will make them workmen that need not to be ashamed. End quote. Winds of change had come for Africa, and Avenus felt the pressure to change along with them. The decisions being made every day by church leaders in Africa would have profound implications for the future of the church there. If you chose, for instance, to ignore the aspirations of the young for education, how would that affect the church a generation from now? And it's not like there was a lot of time to sit around and think about it or to experiment with it. Every year, new nations were being formed. Nations that needed an education system, nations that needed churches, nations that needed schools and health food. Other denominations were scrambling to adapt. What will the Adventists do? Life in decolonizing Africa wasn't always easy. Brand new Adventist hospital opened in Benghazi six years after Libya declared independence. And with the frantic planting of hospitals around the world, Adventist nurses and doctors were always in short supply. Fortunately, Benghazi Adventist Hospital was soon reinforced with doctors and nurses from the Adventist Hospital in Baghdad after the government closed that one down. Unfortunately, the Adventist Hospital in Benghazi was closed 12 years after it opened in 1969 when Muammar Gaddafi seized power in Libya and nationalized all the hospitals. So, it was a chaotic time, and the huge financial investment you may make in a financial institution today may be all for naught in 10 years, depending on what happens in that country. But overall, it was great news. The church was growing like crazy in Africa. Flying up to Europe, the 1958 General Conference session also briefly recognized the work of two women in Finland, whose names, I confess, I will savagely butcher but not intentionally. There was Elsa Luukanen and Aino Leto Luoto. I may have mispronounced their names, but I do want credit for the fact that I said the name Elsa without making a frozen joke. Admirable self-restraint, if you ask me. Elsa led a high-profile evangelistic series in the capital, Helsinki, that brought nearly 100 people into the Adventist church. The five-month-long series took forever because so many people attended that Elsa had to repeat each topic three or four times so that everyone would have a chance to hear it. Even the General Conference President, Ruben Figure, stopped by Helsinki to listen to one of her presentations. And a decade later, there would be a vigorous conversation about whether women like Elsa and Aino should be ordained. As for Germany, it was still in a hard place. Devastated by the war and then cut in two by the Allies, the believers there were still trying to get back on their feet. The German economic miracle notwithstanding. As a division president put it, quote, The industries are working and the people are earning good wages. This, however, does not bring satisfaction because, together with the wages, prices are going up and the cares of life, the problems of eating, drinking, clothing, and housing are not becoming smaller. The people are being kept in constant tension and have no time for spiritual things. End quote. 
What's more, one-sixth of Germans had been refugees and needed to be resettled after the war. But almost 15 years later, there were thousands of refugees still coming from the communist side to the western side of the country each and every week. And this is one reason why the Berlin Wall would be erected in a couple of years. Another problem was the lack of building space. There were only about 100 Adventist church buildings remaining in West Germany, with over 500 congregations needing them. The rest had to rent. And these faced not only extremely high rents, because there was a shortage of buildings everywhere, but also the prejudice of other denominations. For some reason, anti-Avenist feelings seemed to grow in the post-war years. The Central European Division president felt confident that the printing of questions on doctrine, quote, will remove unfortunate misunderstandings concerning our teachings, end quote. Sure. The German leadership did, I should add, find some success in showing William Scharfenberg's anti-tobacco film One in 20,000. So, way to go, Scharf. Skiing over to South and Central America, we find more success. Hold on. How did we ski from Europe to South and Central America? Does anybody have an idea of how that got in the script? Anybody? Does that make sense to anybody? We water skied? We water skied across the Atlantic. Okay. Anyways, sorry about that, my friends. There were 20,000 Adventists in Mexico at this time, and one church leader recounted the story of how a Mexican governor was visiting local city officials when he came upon an Adventist. The governor guessed that this man was an Adventist somehow just by seeing him. Who informed you? The Adventist asked. The governor apparently replied, quote, Sabatista is written all over your face. You look like a Sabatista ought to look. The Sabatistas are the most respected people in my state, end quote. I have to ask, what does a Sabbath keeper look like? And was this really a compliment? Ah, to live in a less cynical age. The Civil War in Colombia, La Violencia, affected millions of people and led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands, including Adventists. When it ended by 1958, Adventist membership stood at 8,500, double that of a decade ago. When a 19-year-old in Colombia heard an Adventist program on the radio, she started keeping the Sabbath and resigned from the factory she worked at in order to avoid having to work on Sabbath. The factory owners called her in and they didn't want to lose her, so they offered her a raise, thinking, well, maybe she just needs more money to stay. She said it wasn't about the money, although I don't know if she took the money or not, uh, but that she would work if they wanted an extra hour every day in order to have Saturday off. Well, the bosses agreed. She left. Two weeks later, she found out that the owner decided to close the entire factory on Saturdays, giving everyone a two-day weekend, which was apparently something of a novelty back then. Why would they do this, you ask? Well, apparently the owners had been raised to keep the Sabbath and must have felt a little guilty about not doing it. So when this teenager took her stand, it inspired both of them to follow suit. The churches in Central and South America didn't play either. The Inter-American Division published baptismal quotas for each mission or conference. Then they published the goal of 12,000 baptisms per year. It took them a few years to reach it, but they reached it, and when they did, they rejoiced, and they celebrated by setting another baptismal goal even higher. 18,000 baptisms next year, my friends. Good luck. In South America... One member was walking four miles home from some evangelistic meetings that they were conducting. It was dark, 
and they stepped on an alligator. I'm going to pause and just let that sink in for a moment. Yeah. The alligator naturally attacked the man and ended up ripping his pants off. Undeterred, the man just kept walking home without pants, apparently. <laughs> uh, why doesn't this story get like a really nice mission story book? You know, from the 1950s. The man with no pants. <laughs> oh, I mean, what else are you going to do, right? Get him, get the pants back? <laughs> well, the funny thing is, there's actually another story very similar to this one in a neighboring South American country that was told at roughly the same time. And this is of another member who was walking home at night. And apparently this time, a Jeep pulled up and offered the member a ride home, just complete stranger, telling him it was dangerous to be walking at night, to which I imagine the member said, no kidding, did you hear about the guy in the alligator? <laughs> but anyways, the guy got in the Jeep, and as they drove just down the road a little bit, they apparently saw a tiger standing in the middle of the street, of where, just, uh, just down the road from where the man had been walking. And the man interpreted that as, this is God's providence to save my life. Oh, I'm telling you these stories, not as historical fact or whatever, although I have no reason to doubt that they happened. I'm just telling you because these are the stories that emerged from the mission field. Avenus' mission was this, this, this fruitful, vibrant, living highway between church members in one country and church members in another country. I mean, when you hear these stories week after week after week after week, you read about them in the review, they get told at church. However you come across them, eventually, of course, books are going to be written with just filled with these stories. You can't help but feel connected to people you've never met, right? So if you ever find yourself in this country, you're like, hey, where's the alligator man? You know, where's the tiger dude? I want to meet them. I heard your story, right? It just, it, it can, these stories connect people. And of course... They inspire people's faith in God as well. Now, we are going to begin walking back to North America. We're going to get a cup of tea, decaf, of course, and we're going to talk about this episode. So, let's walk. There has been a lot of random stories and facts in this episode. And as I said at the beginning, the, the goal isn't to tell some comprehensive story of what's going on in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Actually, I don't think I said that in the beginning. I'm saying that right now. Okay. The goal is to give you a feel for the church at this time. Because over the previous seven episodes, we've been zoomed in to this conflict over QOD. So I hope this quick tour around the world showed you that the Adventist church was bigger than that conflict, Okay, first of all. But I hope you also noticed the optimism that was in the air. Financially, the church was doing better than ever, superlatively better. The changes in the world, while frenzied, were not unmanageable. Is Africa splitting into a bunch of independent countries? Well, we have the playbook. Build more churches, send more missionaries, build more hospitals, build more schools, build more publishing houses. It was just a problem of scale, right? We, we don't have all the resources we need to do all of these things all at once. So the, the struggle, the problem is where do we go next? It, there was no problem in what do we do because the Avenus playbook seemed to be working first in North America, then in Europe, then in Australia, then in any country we went to. Yes, were there cultural differences? Absolutely. But you know what? 
We build a publishing house in Europe, the church grows. We build one in Asia, the church grows. We build one in Australia, the church grows. We build one in Africa, the church grows. Do we employ literature evangelists, call porters, to go around and sell our literature, the things that the publishing houses print? Yes, we do. And you know what happens? The church grows. Doesn't matter what country. And those young people who go and take out those things and sell those things, well, we pay them and they earn tuition, or they sh I should say they earn scholarships for the Adventist school that we're going to build. So you can see there's this, there's this kind of virtuous circle. And then, of course, the more educated become, then they can start working in the publishing house, right? And begin printing even more literature, and we can be less dependent on missionaries to run these things. They can learn to run it themselves. So it was this playbook that just worked. It worked wherever you were. Yes, you had to tweak it depending on situations, if you're in a communist country or a Muslim country, and it didn't always work equally well everywhere, but it worked enough to be the playbook. Nearly everywhere you looked, the church was baptizing more, raising more money, spreading more, and that's what makes the 1960s such an interesting decade to study because the 1960s brought questions that no one in the church had ever dreamed of. Questions which, I would argue, the church is still wrestling with. I read that Rusty Reno had recently quipped, it's always 1968 somewhere, and I, I think there's truth in that statement. In a sense, we Americans and we American Adventists are still stuck in the 1960s. I can't speak for the rest of you. At least, we're stuck with the issues that were raised in that decade. Because the religious vocabulary of Adventism, as we're going to discover in succeeding episodes, and the religious vocabulary of many Christians, okay, I'm, I'm talking about Adventists, but a lot of what I'm saying is true for all Christians, it wasn't ready to handle the modernist movement at the turn of the 20th century, and it certainly wasn't ready to handle the 1960s either. We just didn't have words. What do I mean by the religious vocabulary? We just didn't have words to describe the things that were being faced. We tried to fit, this is a very, very broad we, we tried to fit the new things we saw, the new questions we faced into old categories where they didn't always make sense. We're going to see an example of that in just a second because this leads us to this idea of worldliness. And it seems that the more successful the church became in terms of money and members, the more leaders seemed to be concerned about worldliness. The old word, worldliness, was often used synonymously with a new word, secularism. And one author defined worldliness as, quote, a life lived without God, end quote. Another defined it as, quote, becoming careless concerning sacred matters, end quote. He supplied, by the way, some examples for our edification of what uh, becoming careless about sacred matters looks like. First on his list, joking about marriage. I'm going to guess he doesn't mean telling jokes inside marriage. I'm going to guess he means joking about the seriousness of marriage, the lifelong commitment of marriage or whatever. Okay, this is something you shouldn't joke about. I'm sure he's not on TikTok. He also added another example, taking communion without considering its meaning. Or a third example, disregarding baptismal vows. Another author added, quote, 
and ultra-modern attire adorned with costly jewels generally disclose pride and worldliness, end quote. What's an ultra-modern attire exactly? And why does wearing it suggest pride and worldliness? Worldliness, we are told, quote, may be manifested in many ways. It is revealed in one's conversation, one's style of hairdress, one's dress, his pleasures, the books he reads, the appetites he indulges, the ambitions by which he is ruled, and the activities in which he engages, end quote. Okay, but what specifically? Oh, my friends, our author does not disappoint. Quote, there is music in heaven, but it is not jazz or swing. There are pleasures in heaven, but they are not the pleasures of the ballroom, theater, or card table, end quote. What kind of music do they play in heaven, pray tell? <laughs> Worldliness is everything that does not, it seems, fit in church. It's this rhetorical snowball that just scoops up more and more meaning with each passing generation. Another Adventist author, H.J. Harris, was one of the few who picked up on this tendency when he wrote, quote, During the past 100 years, granola made its debut and bowed out from its position on the country grocery shelves. But the heavens did not open, nor did the holy city descend. Bobbed hair ran the gamut from heresy, sacrilege, and outrage to complete acceptance. Automobiles moved from class distinction to worldliness to accepted necessities. End quote. Can we talk about granola just for a second? Because I just want to tell this man, H.J. Harris, granola's coming back, buddy. Just a few more years from the time that you penned this statement, granola is coming back. And it's going to be brought back by hippies. And I know that's not a word that's going to mean much to you right now. And you'll just have to figure out what that's all about, buddy. Just hang in there. But he also mentioned bobbed hair. My goodness, if you read Avenus articles in the 1920s about bobbed hair, you'd think it was Satan's own hairdo. That somehow Ellen White had a vision, she saw Satan's hair, and it was bobbed hair. Because one article summoned Ellen White to say that, quote, there is an increasing tendency to have women in their dress and appearance as near like the other sex as possible. But God pronounces it abomination, end quote. Okay. So these words apply to having the bobbed hairdo? That, that's what makes you look like a man? And this is what Ellen White was talking about? Well, okay. In the view of Harris, apparently God stopped pronouncing it abomination in the 1960s because it had gained acceptance. Harris reminds the church that not everything they think is worldly is, in fact, worldly. But in every generation, things are pronounced as worldly fashions, and that ends all discussions, right? Because once it's worldly, you can't, you know, you don't debate it. If it's popular, it must be worldly, right? And then again, if being worldly means living a life as, as if God does not exist, then how, how does a bobbed haircut accomplish that? How does driving a car way back when accomplish that? And so I think as the 1960s began to present challenges, some Adventists, like Harris, are recognizing that, that maybe worldliness isn't the best word to use to describe, I think we would say today, secularism. I get what they're getting at, but it just doesn't quite fit. 
Now, you can't think too hard about this word worldliness and how it is used because it is largely a functional word. For Adventists, it is a way of explaining why, with all its apparent success, Jesus still hasn't come back yet. So let's go to Harris one more time for this one. Quote, It is true that we have a host of medical institutions that gird the globe, and they do much to salve the hearts of men. We are justly proud of the chain of educational units that spread fan-like in virtually every direction and on each continent. Their proven good is immeasurable. We point with satisfaction at our printing houses, at the food companies, at our mission stations all around the world. Our electronic computing machines were away, turning out statistics our forefathers never dreamed possible. Our accomplishments and accumulations in men and money, in houses and hospitals, in schools and conversions would have been presumptuous not too many decades in the past. But still, time lingers, and we delay. The Lord has not returned, and we have not gone home. Every day we spend here on this side of that calendar has been subtracted from eternity, borrowed from eternal life. End quote. There has to be some reason why the world hasn't ended yet. And when you read Harris, you can almost feel the genuine anguish that all of this missionary success hasn't been enough. And the answer for many Adventists, of course, was worldliness. And I, please don't misunderstand me. From a theological perspective, I'm not trying to suggest that the word has no meaning or value or, or, or that Christians shouldn't be concerned about worldliness. I'm only trying to identify how this word, I believe, is used very, very, very broadly. And that's what Harris is trying to say here too, right? Not everything that's labeled worldly is in fact worldly. Sometimes in one generation it's worldly and the next it's not, Right? So to be careful with that word, don't spam it everywhere you go. It's not a label that as you walk down the street, you just stick it on everything you can, like it's a campaign poster for somebody running for, for some political office. Be careful where you stick that label. But for many answers, the, for many Adventists rather, the reason why Jesus hadn't come, despite all of this success of going around the world, is worldliness, right? It's not about the quantity of souls that, that matters in terms of accelerating the second coming of Jesus. It's about the quality of those souls. Too many Adventists are entangled in this world in some way, shape, or form. And that must be why Jesus hasn't come back yet. Harris, again, clearly thinks that some Adventists have gone around sticking the world worldly on everything. But he offers a different explanation. It's not worldliness uh, that's the explanation of why we're still here. This is what he says at the close of his article. Quote, Let us be out and sharing. Let us go and give so we can love and live in the land beyond the sun. End quote. That's his answer. Just try harder. As we go forward in this podcast, you're going to see a lot of Adventists advancing one or both of these positions. Jesus either hasn't come because we are too worldly and we need to repent and get right, or... Jesus hasn't come because we just haven't tried hard enough yet. The gospel hasn't gone into all the world yet. There's still somebody out there who hasn't heard the message. Wheeland and Short, of course, are 
recent examples of people who argue that the church was too worldly. They wanted the church to repent of having rejected 1888 so that way the latter rain could come. Andreasen also, in his own fashion, was calling for the church to abandon worldliness, which he saw as a disentanglement with the evangelicals, which led to Adventists compromising their beliefs. Two different forms of worldliness, right? One is a worldliness of pride, of having rejected the 1888 message. The other is a worldliness of, of an inappropriate relationship with other Christians, namely the evangelicals. But in both cases, the problem is worldliness. Others, like Southern African Division President Robert H. Pearson, who was unpersuaded by Wheeland and Short, argued that worldliness was the culprit. This, as I see it, is the tension in Adventism in the middle of the 20th century. So much success, and yet Jesus hasn't returned. The last 60 years that we're going to cover in this podcast are going to be haunted by this tension. Every time Adventists succeed at something, it's always with the knowledge that while it may be progress, it hasn't been enough. And some Adventists will begin to reject this whole way of looking at things. What if we were wrong in thinking that our efforts, whether to work harder or to purify ourselves spiritually, were going to bring the second coming? What if it doesn't work like that? Maybe it really doesn't matter how much we sacrifice, how far we go, or what we give up. Maybe we need to find some other explanation for why Jesus hasn't come. Maybe he's not coming at all. And so, the deconstruction of Adventism begins. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.